This week's episode is brought to you by the Disney Blu-ray release of Howl's Moving Castle and My Neighbor Totoro. Stick around to the middle of the show to hear our review. Of course, you, you do listen to the whole show, right? Right? Welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And I'm still tired. I was going to say, well, I mean, you should only be half tired, right? I am half tired. I mean, okay. I could be, I was a full day of tired from a half day of 24-hour parking, so. Yeah, but it was spent at Disneyland, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's, a, that's more than a full day park. It is more than a full day park, but it was half day park edge for me i guess maybe. well but it was you did more than just park i mean you went into the park well yeah i mean I, I was i was in the park and i you know i did stuff i didn't mean like literal parking i mean like parking oh. as in going around the park oh touring the park yeah we'll we'll go with that we'll, we'll go, go with, with that <laughs> sure well good then that means we must have a trip report coming up we got one let's do it I'm So to begin the monstrous summer that Disney has planned, and in conjunction with the release of Monsters University, obviously, uh, Disney held another 24-hour madness event uh, that took place at both the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World and Disneyland and Disney California Adventure here Mm. in California. And because I'm not nuts, I did not do the full 24 hours like a lot of people did. I did half-day park version where I only did 12 hours. Well, it was 12 and a half. I got there at 5.30 in the afternoon. Well, I was going to say, yeah, but it was the, the second half anyways, which is probably the more difficult part. Yeah, because it's so late. And, you know, it was the more difficult and surprisingly the way less crowded later on in the evening. Hmm. It was it was interesting, but mo- most of the day. Oh, when we first got there, we took the monorail in, so we went to Tomorrowland, and then we promptly left Disneyland and went directly to California Adventure. Um, spent spent a little bit of time over there, but it was also a grad night for grads, um, so they were closing large portions of the park at like ten o'clock. So uh-huh. there really wasn't going to be much else to do there except for. Soren, which clearly I'm not going to do because I hate it. <laughs> and, I mean, there really wasn't a lot left to do. So I went back to, to Disneyland around 8 o'clock. Um, Martina left um, about the same time because she thinks I was nuts for doing it. <laughs> but well, she, uh, didn't, it she didn't have to work that day, though, did she? Uh, no, neither of us did. She, oh, had to work, oh, okay. she had to work Saturday at 9 in the morning, so that was another Ouch. reason why... Um, it was funny because when I came home Saturday morning at 6.50, her alarm was set for 7, so, like, we pretty much just traded places in the bed. <laughs> oh, that's it, good. It was so, wonderful. You know, this is this is the second time that they've done the 24-hour party on both coasts. Because uh, Disneyland has been open before, and at one time they were open five days. Yes, which Straight. I think is also madness. I have no idea. Yes. You know, 
I, I would have assumed that the park would have been a lot dirtier later on in the night just mm -hmm. because of having people in all day. But they did a really good job of cleaning stuff up um, at, at at least at Disneyland. I haven't heard about California Adventure. I know that at uh, Magic Kingdom in Florida, it got pretty grimy as the night went on, though, because I heard reports from friends how terrible it looked. Well, that's, that was one of my questions. Uh, I wonder how it compared between the two. You know... So. I, I, you know, again, I heard from other people it was really crowded in Florida, but I, I after the second fireworks show, a lot of people left Disneyland, and then again, as the night wore on, there were less and less people mm. actually in the park. Um, it, it was like a normal, non-busy operating day, essentially. You know, there were no lines. Dark and cold. Yeah, dark, dark and cold. That, that's what dark it was. So once you got back to Disneyland, Martina left. So basically, we were a free man the whole night. Yes, I was on my own. I met up with some friends. Uh, my friend David and uh, Justin Scard as well came at one point in the evening. And, you know, we, we wandered. We didn't really have an agenda. We just did whatever we could to stay awake for the rest of the night. <laughs> I, I didn't feel tired until, I don't know, maybe 4.30. Um, the problem was we went on Pirates. I think that was, that was the issue because oh. we were sitting down. It was dark. Yeah. And then halfway through Pirates, I was like, oh, gosh, I'm tired. Yeah, I need to wake up. The first few minutes of Pirates, once you get out of the bayou, are pretty slow. Yes. Once you go yes. through the caverns. Yeah. So that, I, that that was the problem. It was really weird seeing seeing the park almost that empty. Because, you know, when you're going th through the, the the bayou part of it, um, you know, the restaurant's there. And I'm used to people in the restaurant eating and such. But, like, it was completely empty. There was no right. one in there. So it was really, really eerie. Well, so the crowds kind of died down. Weren't a lot of waits for the rides. What was the real reason to be there at um, 4 o'clock in the morning or 3 Just to say you were there? Just being there, apparently, at 3, 4, 5 o'clock in the morning. I mean, there, I didn't, we, didn't, we didn't go to any of the 24-hour events when they held it for Leap Day last year. But a yeah. lot of the people I was with were saying that there is some kind of a certain energy that was missing this time around that they had then. They, they felt that that was more of a party and this was more of a, hey, we're open for four 24 hours. Yeah, did you did you get a sense from the people that you spoke to that went to the Leap Day event if this was less crowded? Uh, they they said this was much much less crowded. They said um, a lot of the crowds, at least at, at Disneyland, and I mean I know from Walt Disney World too that the crowds pretty much never died down all night. Whereas here, at least at Disneyland, it got very very empty as the night wore on to the point where like you know sometimes you would go a minute or two before you would see another human being. <laughs> Almost like the zombie apocalypse that hit Disneyland. Exactly, exactly. Which would be an awesome movie, by the way. Someone should get on that. Okay, okay. We'll start the script right after the show. Um, so what was the... Well, let's start. What was the worst part of being stuck at Disneyland for 12 hours? Uh, I mean, they had a lot of quote-unquote special events. I guess still considered part of Limited Time Magic that went along with the event. They had a... Uh, Toontown pajama party, which was kind of lame. Um, <laughs> they had castle moments, they called it, where they would, it, it was a castle lighting moments, and basically it was an audio recording, very bad imitations of Mike and Sully from uh, Monsters Incorporated wow. and Monster University. Uh, clearly not John Goodman, John, mm, John Goodman and Billy Crystal. Um, <laughs> but they were like, oh, we can change the lights different colors. I'm going to turn it green. No, I'm going to turn it blue. And like, <laughs> it went back and forth for like two minutes, and I was like, we seriously sat here a half hour for this. It was terrible. <laughs> well, what but else they, are you going to do? 
Yeah, well, that's true. We, we pretty much did everything else. Um, but yeah, th there wasn't a lot of super extra special things I had going on. It was, again, like a normal operating day, just in the middle of the night. Okay, and so that leads us to the next question. What do you think was the best thing about being there for so long? Uh, I guess just being able to say, hey, I was there at, you know, four, five, six in the morning. Just so just because, watching the sunrise, um, which, by the way, I had to take out my compass and figure out where the sun was going to rise. <laughs> it, it literally was rising. The, the only, like, the best place was it would rise over interventions, which... Mm. Who who cares? <laughs> so it's probably the best that interventions looked in years. Probably, yeah, probably. probably. I mean, that, that was cool to see, and it was cool to see the, the the sun come up kind of near over the castle if you looked at it at a certain angle. Um, around five thirty, a, a lot of the crowd started gathering around the castle just for the big goodbye, which there really wasn't a big goodbye. Um, oh, okay. Later on this week, as when after this episode goes up on Friday, I recorded a point five throughout the night in the park. Mm. Um, and I have the whole ending part of the evening. Uh, I recorded it so you can hear what the goodbye was. Again, just bad imitation actors talk, <laughs> saying goodbye, thanks for staying, uh, staying the night, blah, blah, blah. So uh, I had that this was great, great image of Walt in a bathrobe coming out to get the paper and yelling at everybody. <laughs> you kids, get off my get lawn. Get off my lawn. Get off my lawn. So did it, did it seem like everything else was open, though? I mean, plenty of eateries. Uh, most of the restaurants were open. Some of the attractions did close as the night went on. Um, after the grad night ended in California Adventure, um, uh, the the major e-tickets there closed, like uh, Radiator Springs and everything. Um, wow. Pirates closed at, I think, like 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. Um, a lot of the attractions did close over time, but there's still a heck of a lot that were that were open still. So it, still it was pretty cool. I can imagine. So is this something that you do again? No. Oh no! I I think I'm okay. I'm done. I mean, it was cool to be there. Say I did it for the the twelve hours, uh, twelve twelve out of twenty four in bad. But <laughs> I don't I don't feel the need to have to do it again. So enough people probably did it last time and realized it wasn't worth it. Whereas probably Disney World had so many much. Uh, so many more people that hadn't done it before. Yeah, I think a lot so of the locals this time around noticed that it. You know, well, hey, it was we did Friday. it once. Yeah, it was a Friday. So you so know, again, it, it was Friday. it was busy during when I got there during the fireworks. I was diverted backstage down Main Street. Um, I saw all the par parade floats and everything. Which, by the way, you couldn't take pictures. There was people stationed, so sorry. Um, <laughs> but it it was very crowded then. But then after the fireworks were done, emptied. It was, was it. nothing. So. You know, if you want to come out the next time to do a 24-hour event, I'll go with you. Okay. But okay. if not, I, I would probably not do it again. Catch your sleep is much more important. Yeah, exactly. But, um, you know, special shout-outs to David and Justin Scard and even uh, Jason Cram, who, who I spent some time with throughout the evening. So thanks, guys, for, for hanging. He's a nerd. He's a geek. But we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. This week's book is Theme Park by Scott Lucas, published in 2008 with 272 pages. And uh, I know I'd been tweeting and posting Facebook photos from this, pay, uh, from this book over the past couple weeks, and we had a lot of interest in it. So I wanted to make sure I reviewed it as quickly as possible. And we'll talk near the end of the review about why uh, I was posting photos from the book. Anyway, uh, since a few weeks ago when we had covered the history of theme parks, it, it got me really interested to learn a lot more about, you know, what started 
the amusement parks and the fairs to where we ended up with a theme park. Um, and Theme Park by Scott Lucas really looks at the theme park, theme space, themed space, amusement parks, and entertainment space. I also wondered, you know, what's the difference between like Disneyland and Kennywood? Well, I was doing a search. I ran across a few books about theme spaces, uh, in particular by Lucas, the author, and ordered a few. So Lucas is currently a professor of anthropology at Lake Tahoe Community College. I did check it is nowhere near Greendale, but you know, there's no telling. Um, I did a search for Lucas and found that, that he's done a lot of speaking uh, academically and for the Thea, which is the themed entertainment association and other theme park groups on theme space. Oh, I thought that was just his daughter's name. Yeah, Thea, or maybe Taya. Taya. I'm not sure how he'd say it. He probably does call his daughter theme space. Probably. Probably does. Well, anyway, clean your room, theme space. Clean your room, theme space. Uh, the guy has done a lot of research and has the credentials to back him up. Theme Park, the book, is in every way an academic treatise on theme space. Lucas does a very credible job of covering the evolution of theme parks, but he really only steps forward from the amusement parks itself. He doesn't really cover a lot of the history of any type of parks that came before the amusement type parks. Uh, a majority of the focus of the book is on Coney Island parks and spaces. And until I read the book, I had no idea there were like seven or eight different parks in Coney Island as well. Uh, he covers Steeplechase is one of the major parks he looks at and discusses an attraction called A Trip to the Moon at Coney Island's Luna Park by Frederick Thompson. It was created at the Buffalo Pan American Exposition in 1901 and was moved to Coney Island in 1902. And it was so successful that he built Luna Park with the proceeds. And what's interesting about A Trip to the Moon is it's considered the first dark ride ever, which is pretty cool. It actually takes you from the Earth to the moon and they had people walking around the moon and they sold you moon-related food while you were there. Like, so. like moon cheese i'm assuming at this point in time because what else that's the only moon food i that's can only think moon, of you know moon wine maybe moon juice like the moon wine mixer maybe the, the the moon wine mixer hey if it works if it works anyways back to the book so uh <laughs> throughout the book lucas galaxy y galaxy y so lucas looks at the theme park through different perspectives um he looks at it through the land of the theme park as a machine which basically talks about the rides as a show and as text, which was interesting, he actually covers theme parks in literature, like novels and films and video games. Uh, he covers the history of each theme within the theme as the basic for the subject, so it got pretty meta at times and the points I was scratching my head. Uh, sadly, though, there was a lot of repetition uh, when Lucas, when he was stressing his points. Okay, so here we get to the big point, or my biggest issue with the book. Uh, comes from the standpoint of a hardcore Disney enthusiast. There were several times in the book that Lucas is describing Disneyland and he actually presented the wrong information. I know I heard the collective gasp. Uh, for instance, he mentions Disneyland's Cinderella Castle. Okay, See, let that sink in for a second, guys. Yeah, I was going to say, let that sink in. <laughs> Disneyland's Cinderella's Castle. Well, we'll leave it at that. It's, it's a simple mistake, but it brought into question for me the credibility, not only of his fact-checking, but also the editorial staff of the publisher. So if he made some simple mistakes with Disneyland, uh, which is a 
you know, park known the world over, then what other kind of mistakes were made with the other parks that he talked about and investigated? Uh, I posted some photographs of the mistakes online and had <laughs> tons of people just shocked and aghast when you know what book it was. And, uh, you know, Jeff Curdy did come to the author's rescue and said, well, you know, maybe he meant the Cinderella's castle that's at the, uh, the, uh, storybook, the Canal. You know, storybook Canal rides. And I was like, nah, probably not. So, okay. So getting down to the nitty gritty, overall, it's a good book. But I really wouldn't recommend it to anyone who isn't studying theme spaces specifically. It doesn't really cover the history of theme parks like I wanted. And it really has a very academic bent. Lucas is a very, very good writer, good command of the language, uh, and he spent a lot of time researching. Uh, his notes are thorough and exhaustive. He's got a great index and a great note field at the end. Um, but if you're looking for a book that explores the nature of theme spaces and will guide you as you discover it, this is a good book. Because he doesn't really give you the answers, he just sort of points you and pushes you um, in the back. Really hard. What and a jerk. Fun. Yeah, that's okay. But he, he never really, in my mind, nailed down what a theme park is. And, you know, that's what my interest is. And I wanted to know more about the history. So I've been taking some notes and we'll have the Communicore Weekly Guide to Theme Parks. Soon. soon. Someday soon. Coming to a, an online bookstore near you. So <laughs> anyway, so can't give it two thumbs up. But, you know, if you really have an academic need to learn about theme parks and theme space, and well, that'll suit you right there. And this one is Theme Park by Scott Lucas, published in 2008. What we liked, what we didn't like, yays in the booze, 60-second review. Well, Disney has just released the Blu-ray editions of My Neighbor Totoro and Howl's Moving Castles. Moving Castle, not castles, there's only one. There's only one. There's only one. Uh, and this is pretty, pretty exciting. Uh, these films are not Disney. They are by Studio Ghibli, and they are productions of Hayao Miyazaki, who is a famed uh, Japanese director, storyman, artist, whatever you want to call him. He's he's been often uh, related as the the current, you know, Walt Disney, basically. Uh, both of these films have been. Uh, uh, completely redone by Disney, at least for their DVD release with uh, with a voice cast and looking at redoing some of the sound and the special effects. Uh, but we're most excited because they're finally on Blu-ray. Yes, 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 because these films are both fantastic. Um, I love them to pieces, and you know, seeing them on Blu-ray was almost like watching a brand new film all over again because yeah. they just they look so good. Like I can't even explain to you how good the transfers are on these two films. I, like so good that even if you own the DVD, if you have a Blu-ray play player, I would say go buy these films because they look so good. Yeah, we've we've reviewed lots of Blu-ray material here and at Mice Chat, and we always say, yeah, it looks great. Buy it because it looks good. Both of these films blew me away with the transfer. No, just for the record, we weren't just saying those other films look good. They did look good. They did look good. <laughs> this one, these two look the best, though. Yes, yes. We've we've watched in at the Taylor household, My Neighbor Totoro, probably 15 or 20 times, if not more than that, on DVD. So we know the film backwards and forwards. We still sat there the whole time watching the review copy agog because it was gorgeous. We heard things we had never heard before. 
musical sweeps or swells, uh, sound effects that weren't there that we had noticed before because of the transfer. It was gorgeous. Um, my Neighbor Totoro, one of my favorite films of all time, and I would argue with people that it's, well, I can't, I'm not a film student, so I can't really argue. It's one of the best films ever made. Absolutely. I would agree with that. But a lot of Miyazaki's films and the Studio Ghibli stuff, or Ghibli, I guess is what I should be saying, uh, what I love about him is there's not always a villain. And there's there's no villain, really, in My Neighbor Totoro. No, I mean, there's you no know, there are, there's no clear plot to the, the piece, but it's still a gorgeous film. And, and you're completely enraptured and captured by it. And everyone that we show this film, one of my favorite things to do is to have friends over. I know I don't have many friends, but to have friends over and say, you sit down and watch this, you'll thank me. Yeah. Or let exactly. them borrow it and they enjoy it. So uh, definitely get My Neighbor Totoro on Blu-ray. It is amazing. And now we need to talk about Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah, I mean, the, I was going to say, the only real complaint I had about either of these two films is that uh, Totoro has a ton of special features on yes, it. Yes, yeah, um, that's true. Howl's Moving Castle does not, and that's the only downside to that Blu-ray. Everything else, yes. though, about the Howl's uh, on Blu-ray is fantastic. Again, it looks gorgeous. I love the story of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a it's a much clearer, there is a, a clear villain of the piece. There is a, a, <laughs> a much clearer plot as opposed to Totoro's just bouncing around from scene to scene. Yeah. Um, the film was gorgeous, but there was a significant lack of extras on the Blu-ray. That uh, for T- Totoro had a whole bunch. I don't know why Howells did not. Um, but that was the only downside to to Howells' um, uh, disc. Yeah. I've always I've always tried to push the Studio Ghibli films certain ways. Like uh, Ponyo is amazing. That's geared more towards the um, the preschool set, and and Totoro always felt like a you know pre-tween film. And Howl's Moving Castle always felt like a teenager film to me. Yeah, it's definitely it's a, a, a more adult film of the two. Well, that's true. That's true. It is the more of the adult film. I guess that's what I was getting at. I didn't want to pigeonhole them into any age group specifically. But this one has a bit of a love romance type thing. A lot of action. Uh, some great voice acting. It's got Batman in it. It's got Batman. It's got Batman and Billy Crystal. Yep. So it's got Mike Wazowski in it. Um, we watched the film the other day and my wife wasn't able to watch it and so today the my youngest the nine-year-old was like mom you gotta watch this it looks beautiful it's great it's like a new brand new movie and we've so, seen how's moving castle how's moving castle and problems a ton of times so well. uh, i would definitely say both films are two yes. queen of core thumbs up very much if we had more thumbs you got to get Totoro, you got to get House Moving Castle, and you got to buy all the rest of the Studio Ghibli films as well. Because they're all wonderful. So yes. go buy them, because then they'll continue putting them out on Blu ray, and they'll look even more gorgeous. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five legged goat. So you really can't miss the, the distinctive Gertie the dinosaur that hangs out in Echo Lake at uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios. However, chances are you didn't know that she used to be a real animated girl. So Gertie the Dinosaur was the world's first animated film and it debuted in 1914 and it was by Windsor McKay. Now, the film was part of McKay's vaudeville act and Walt uh, often said how much he owed his early animations to the film. So the next time you see Gertie in the park, wave hello, then go home and try to find the film on the internet. Oh, and buy an ice cream bar. Yes, buy an ice cream bar. I'm sorry, I forgot about that. That's true. That's it's true. all about synergy. Gertie the, the dinosaur and ice cream go together <laughs> like... Well, it's, it's the ice creams of distinction, or extinction. Extinction. 
That's right, something like that. Of extinction, something like that. So I don't know. I don't know what dinosaurs and ice cream have to do together, but I'm sure if dinosaurs had ice cream, they would enjoy eating it. Yeah, they'd probably still be here today. They probably would. They wouldn't be extinct because of the ice cream. That's a scientific fact, guys. Take that to the bank. A Communicore Weekly scientific fact. Yes. Oh, we just got a new segment we came up with. Boom. Wow. Get the boys on a theme song. All right, we'll have to call them up right now. So, well, we've made it to the end of another episode. So thank you guys so much for watching, listening, and eating ice cream. Yes, because it's delicious. Be sure to leave us a comment and rate us on iTunes, and maybe you can tell us our favorite, your favorite ice cream flavor. Ooh, that's good. Like if it's like a five ice cream. Well, anyway, um, email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com. You can also like us on the Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. Yep, and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Imaginerding, and I uh, he's at Jeff Heimbook. I'm really not both. No, because that'd be weird. It'd be weird. And oh, and when you follow us on Twitter, you can ask us what our favorite ice cream actually is. Spoiler, I don't eat ice cream, guys. I'm lying to you. I'm sorry. <laughs> you could have waited. It was still, I mean, when I did, I enjoyed it. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but I don't eat it anymore. He's watching his girlish figure. I am watching my girlish figure. That's what it is. All That's 98 pounds of me. <laughs> Well, for Skinny Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Skinny Jeff Heimbuck. <laughs> Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next time on CommuniCore Weekly, the greatest online show. Banana stand. <laughs>